This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 75, July the 12th, 1984. As I think most of you know I have been working for the past few years on a study of uh, church and state. It is a particularly urgent subject because we are increasingly se seeing a battle as the state attempts to take over more and more of the realm that belongs to God. I have finished the writing. Now the <laughs> typesetting, proofreading, and all the tiresome chores uh, will begin. However, I do want to discuss briefly a book I used for a footnote or two. It is Joseph R. Strayer, S-T-R-A-Y-E-R, -E The Reign of Philip the Fair, published in 1980 by the Princeton University Press. Now, the interesting thing about Philip the Fair, whose dates are the early 1300s, is that the reign of this French monarch marks a transition in medieval history. At this point, it became quite obvious that men had ceased to think in essentially Christian terms and were thinking in status terms. In fact, Strayer speaks of Philip the Fair, essentially a kindly and well-meaning man, as the high priest of the religion of monarchy. People began to believe that their salvation and their hope for the future was in civil government, not in the church. This faith even affected the uh, bishops of the church, so that more and more bishops were ready to be favorable to the monarch rather than to the papacy. In not too long a time, this led to what was known as Gallicanism. Catholic Church in France became a part of the monarchy rather than primarily a part of the Catholic Church as headquartered in Rome. In due time, of course, the Vatican itself was captured by these forces and secularized. And you have the later popes and the Renaissance popes whose perspective was very definitely humanistic. In fact, the College of Cardinals was regularly controlled by the monarchs so that the College of Cardinals represented not so much uh, the church as the various powerful states. The result was popes who made no pretense of believing any article of the Christian faith. Now I'm going to jump to another subject, but uh, one related. Two of our Chalcedon uh, staff members, David Dawn and Otto Scott, are working on a textbook in college economics. 
This is at the request of a particular university. The textbook will deal with economics in terms of a Christian and an historical as well as economic perspective. In other words, economics will not be abstracted from the culture of the times and the history. In the third chapter, written by Otto Scott, there is a very interesting passage that sets the temper as he describes the transition to commerce, to a priority on money-making, so that it was not that there was greater commerce than before, but that the perspective now had been altered so that men did not subordinate their business to their faith, but their faith to their business. Otto Scott begins this chapter, and I shall read a couple of pages because I think they are so interesting. I quote, Several factors were responsible for the fact that the Renaissance began in Italy. One was that the Crusades brought prosperity to Italy, although other Western nations did not especially benefit commercially. Another was the fall of Byzantium, which sent many skilled and scholarly refugees, uh, refugees to Italy. Still, another reason was that Italy, unlike much of northern Europe, was studded with towns and cities, some of great antiquity, left over from the time of ancient Rome. Being an urban region placed Italy in an advantageous position to progress in uh, manufacturing and commerce. Roman relics, sarcophagi, broken pillars, arches, buildings, tombstones, fragments of statues were scattered all about Italy and in other Mediterranean countries. The city of Rome, seat of the Vatican, epitomized this condition in the late 13th century. St. Peter's was then modest compared to Michelangelo's grandiose contribution over two centuries later. The Lateran, the cathedral of uh, Rome, had been destroyed and rebuilt many times. None of the streets were paved, and the elegant Via del Corso of today was the scene of frenetic and usually lethal horse races. Only the remains of imperial Rome stood out against the sky, stark, desolate, and unappreciated, making Rome seem like a dead body buried in the ruins of its own greatness. It had a population of 35,000. No commerce or crafts flourished amid the miserable hovels in which the great majority of the people lived. And such productive activity as their was existed furtively in the city's undergrowth, hidden in the ruins of ancient splendors. So wrote Timothy Holmes in his account of the Rome of the day. With all these reminders of the past about them, it is no wonder the Italians were the first to unearth the culture of the ancient pagans. But this rediscovery or renaissance came gradually 
and was preceded by what can only be described as a fall of its leaders and people from the Christian faith into worldly patterns. This turn to the world and its treasures, its powers and pursuits was reflected in the Vatican and in the many branches, tributaries, and ecclesiastical pools of the church. The fall did not occur all at once, nor everywhere. The church continued to produce saints and great spiritual leaders. But the Middle Ages brought a host of inventions and advances that lifted Europe into unprecedented riches. Some of these advances were developed in the monasteries and others by the independent artisans of the Middle Ages working in the marketplace. The result was a continuing rise in the standard of living, of the accumulation of great riches and in rising contention over such riches. When Dante was born in 1265, the city was emerging from the lifestyle of the Middle Ages. His father was a small businessman described by a contemporary as one of the mice scuttling about on the floor. His first home was a rough, square, wooden clay building with a thatched roof, very cold in winter, when the ill-fitting wooden shutters or flapping squares of leather did little to keep out the wind and draughts which howled and whistled through glassless windows. The grown-ups then went about the house dressed in animal skins and hats. Everyone slept fully dressed in winter and naked in summer. The floor was covered with straw, which quickly rotted and then stank. The walls had one or two tapestries and recesses, which served as chairs, for furniture was scarce, mostly tables, benches, and chests. The kitchen was the top of the house, so that the cooking smells might go out and through the roof. Houses were self-contained with their own wells and their own ovens for making bread. Again, quoting Timothy Holmes. But the Alighieri's were not poor. They had servants and supported some indigents. Charity in the waning decades of the Middle Ages in Italy was still a Christian duty to which all subscribed. But that was an exception for in Florence and Dante's time, very little remained that was purely Christian. In a city of nearly 30,000, at least 6,000 were considered rich and 4,000 recognizably poor. To that number was added 17,000 beggars, a class with which Italy teemed. The streets of Florence were paved considerable advance then when it was not true of Rome or Paris. And the city inside the walls was dense and crowded, noted, known since the days of the empire for its violence. It was once considered the source of the better gladiators. Florence was torn during Dante's early adulthood by a civil war between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. It was also a great center of vice. Gambling was endemic, prostitution rampant, homosexuality so common that the Germans called it Florenzen. This situation endured, although penalties for vice were savage. Sodomites were publicly castrated. 
pimps fined and flogged. Pervert pimps had a hand amputated for the first offense and a foot for the second. But corruption detoured justice. Informers received half the fines levied on the convicted, and torture was used to extract confessions. Beheadings, burials, alive with legs kicking in the air, were popular spectacles. In 1300, Boniface VIII declared the first jubilee year of the Vatican, an event that served as the gate of a new era. Two million pilgrims came to Rome for the event, and the small resident population soared to 200,000. By every measure, the occasion was the festival of the Middle Ages. The impresario of this ecclesiastical circus Boniface VIII lived in unparalleled splendor, wearing robes sewn with precious stones and gambling frenetically with dice of pure gold. He was said to wallow in every sin from simony to sodomy and to be a professing atheist. Quoting Holmes once more, idiot, idiot, he is reported as having screamed at a priest who had invoked the name of Jesus. But he believed in the devil all right and hung himself all over with amulets and charms against the evil eye, including a ring taken from the dead body of the Emperor Frederick's son, Manfred. To be represented by such a figure reflected the degraded condition of the church. In its stead, new twin spirits of the age, money and political power, rose to dominate Italy and most of Europe's upper class. Well, you can see why this book is going to be an unusual book in economics, because with every chapter, the background is given so that we see the historical and cultural, the religious context in which these ideas developed. Why economics in the modern age was divorced regularly from morality. And in our day, of course, we have the kind of thing that is so prevalent and was echoed when Dan Maxwell asked various men, supposedly Christian and prominent businessmen, if they would be interested in contributing an article to our Christianity and business issue of the journal. Daniel found more than one person answering him in amazement. What the hell does Christianity have to do with my business? Now, that temper began with the Renaissance, with the 13th century, really. And this is the background that Otto Scott with David Dawn give us as they tell us why in the modern age things have developed the way they have. Why, although Puritanism and Christian faith generally 
gave rise to dramatic impulses and growths in the economic sphere. Their divorce from the faith has led to very serious consequences. Well, now on to something uh, somewhat related. A book I just finished by Peter Laslett, L-A-S-L-E-T-T, an English scholar. The World We Have Lost, England Before the Industrial Age, published for 1995 by Charles Scribner's Sons in New York. This is the third edition uh, revised, published in 84, originally published in 65. It's an interesting book because what Laslett does is to take up England in particular. He goes back to the late, very late Middle Ages, although substantially he begins with the 1600s, or 1500s, the Tudor monarchs, I would say. So it is the modern world, the Renaissance and modern world era in particular. And he calls attention to the fact that a great many scholars, including Karl Marx in particular, have idealized the past in order to clobber the present in order to be able to talk about the evils that capitalism brought in. And he speaks of the idyllic patriarchalism which Marx and Engels had in mind in the Communist Manifesto and other writings, and how capitalistic exploitation destroyed the idyllic past. Well, he says, this idea of a good past and a bad present is a myth. And he goes into it in terms of a variety of subjects, the village community, the class structure, the fact of births, marriages, and deaths. Did the peasants really starve? One chapter. And uh, a great deal more. So he both knocks out some of the very ugly myths some people have invented. The past, because it is the past, was bad. As well as those who say the past was the golden age and we have descended from that good era. It disabuses us of both kinds of myths and does a good job. Not uh, an easy book to read by and large, not that it is difficult, but it is humdrum. A lot of data, but important and interesting data. His perspective is a very intelligent one. Now, this is by the way, but uh, 
I thought this point was a very, very telling one. On page 200, he writes, The late Max Gluckman's examination of African communities shows how a fight over the dynastic succession is a permanent feature of political life. Far from weakening or destroying the whole, conflict actually confirms its solidarity. This fits some of the features of political life in England aptly enough, from Tudor to Stuart, to Hanoverian and even to Victorian times. The segmented characteristics of the political community of our country in pre-industrial times, its division into a network of small county communities, which were also conflict arenas, will concern us in our next chapter. Well, uh, we're not interested here in going into his development of his, this thesis in the next chapter. But with the fact that he says that a time of conflict, even though it may be a time of stress and of tension and of some very great distress socially, is not necessarily bad. Conflict is often very helpful in the development of a society, in provoking a society to greater strength, into seeing the weaknesses and the defects of the present and growing in terms of them. This is why a certain type of conservatism is barren and sterile, because all it wants to do is to look at the past and not to look at the present creatively and say, what are the basic moral premises, the foundations that are important in the past? How can we cope with the problems of today in terms of those premises? Instead of trying to go back to something, to bring what was in the past and apply it to the present instructively, dynamically, this is what is needed. Well, now to another subject, one of the books I just finished, in fact, the night before last, is a book published ten years ago in 1974 by the Ohio University Press. The author, David D. Cooper, the title, The Lesson of the Scaffold, The Public Execution Controversy in Victorian England. Now, uh, the book is a very humanistic one. You may recall a couple of months ago I touched on the fact that in the medieval era there was no such thing as legal torture. The use of torture by civil government and by the officers of the law came in in the late Middle Ages. It developed with the Renaissance. And we see, for example, I believe something like three episodes of the use of torture under Richard III, but then under Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth, a great deal of it. 
And from that time on, the severity of punishment, the idea was that the more public the exhibition of the dead, the more effective the lesson, the more awesome the execution, the greater the restraint on people. <clears throat> Bodies could be hanged for months after the execution. They were virtually always exposed. Uh, some of the uh, things done to the body were horrifying. Before the person was dead, sometimes he was disemboweled, and in other ways, horribly treated, before he was finally put out of his misery. As Cooper writes on page 27, and I quote, in the reigns of the Tudors and Stuarts, no more than 50 offenses carried the death penalty. But in the period from the restoration to the death of George III in 1820, approximately 160 years, statutes defining crimes with capital punishments swelled to over 200. During Mary Tudor's reign, the sobriquet bloody given her for allowing the fires of Smithfield to consume heretics, only four additional statutes were added as capital crimes. In the relatively more enlightened and more recent reign of George III, 60 crimes were added to the death penalty statutes." Unquote. The results were, of course, frightening. Children were executed for stealing a loaf of bread and so on. Now, this was brought about by humanism. Then the humanists treated this, and Cooper does also, as though this type of thing went back to time immemorial and was a product of Christianity. And, of course, they could always find one or two people who felt that to abolish this type of ugly execution would be a death blow to a crime and uh, criminal law and law enforcement and Christianity. <clears throat> now, the one argument that is sustained throughout is that those opposed to public executions and favoring private executions, that is, closed from all but a handful, were also people who opposed the death penalty. So, the humanists brought in these fearful public executions and extensive tortures before and during execution. Then they protested against these and uh, favored humane killings in private and then the abolition of the death penalty. 
Well, we have not seen the abolition of this inhumanity. It prevails more now than it did in the 18th century. In a good deal of the world, behind the Iron Curtain certainly, torture and executions on a scale undreamed of in the 17th and 18th centuries now take place. Moreover, it is not public. The French Revolution began the removal of the public from executions. They would not uh, announce when the executions were to take place. As a result, I believe the maximum crowd at any of the executions, the guillotining, never exceeded 4,000 people. Moreover, there was always a roll of drums to drown out the last words of the executed who went to the guillotine so that their protestations of innocence could not be heard. Now on to something else. One of the things I'm working on is a book on underground man, very much a key figure in the modern age. Of course, the key writer on the subject was Dostoevsky, who described very, very clearly the modern age and the socialist temper. In his books, especially in The Possessed, he has one of the characters explain the essence of their revolutionary ideas. And I quote, to level mountains is a great idea, not at all absurd. There is no need of education. We've had enough science. We can go on collecting material for thousands of years without its help. What we need is organized obedience. The thirst for culture is really an aristocratic thirst. The moment you have the family or love, you get the desire for property. We will slay that desire. We will give a free hand to drunkenness and slander and private informers. We will allow the most unheard of licentiousness. We will stifle every genius in its cradle. Everything shall be reduced to a common denominator. Complete equality for slaves must be kept in hand. Absolute submission, no individuality, none whatsoever. Each belongs to all and all to each. All the slaves are equal in their slavery. The first thing to do is to lower the level of education, science, and ability. A high standard of knowledge and capability is possible only for good intellects, and they are not wanted. Our teaching is at bottom a negation of honor, and by openly admitting dishonor, 
we can easily attract any Russian. The right to dishonor, for that they will all come to us, but to the last man. The most important element, the cement that binds everything together, is shame at having any opinion of one's own. That is indeed a strength, a continual influence towards the condition in which no one has any particular personal ideas in his head. He would be ashamed to have them. End of quote. Well, it looks like our public schools are doing a good job towards that end. Of course, the goal was for the elite to rule then the common man. We have had, after World War II, the group-oriented society and the destruction of individualism. All this has gone hand in hand with a pretense that this is personhood. This is self-realization. You are not to realize yourself in advancing yourself, but you are to realize yourself in self-gratification. This is the gospel of personhood. It is interesting, as one writer, writing a good many years ago, 1971, not that long ago, Lael E. Bartlett, The Vanishing Parson, had this to say. He was writing in particular with regard to the situation in the Catholic Church and the decline in the number of priests and their hostility to celibacy. And he said, I quote, The personhood revolution is shaking foundations in the Church and everywhere today. This rev revolution took place in theory a long time ago in the 1700s. It began as the flowering of the Enlightenment first articulated in elegant drawing rooms and paneled libraries, and for centuries limited in practice only to some of the people. Now this ultimate acceptance of genuine democracy is everywhere, not just horizontally, but vertically, straight down through the layers of this classless society. Its gospel says that what matters most on this planet is the human person. That anything which hurts or harms or impinges on his health and welfare and fullness of being is wrong. It says that in the few short years he has on this earth, each human being should have the right to develop the only real thing he has, his self. And that this self has a potential of undreamed of possibilities. This gospel of personhood is moving in where the church creeds once lived. It is moving to the pulpit 
the parsonage, the pew. In so doing, it precipitates a first magnitude crisis of belief, which I think is very well put. When you destroy the church, when you degrade the priesthood, when you infect the clergy, priest or pastors with humanistic ideas, the church is destroyed. And this is what has happened in so many churches of our day. In the Russia prior to the revolution, the church had been captured by the state as the United States is trying to capture the church today. And step by step over the generations, the church became more and more a captive of the state. Now, the controls increased to the point where no one wanted to be a priest in the Russian Orthodox Church, and with good reason. So then it became mandatory for the oldest son of the priest to succeed his father. It became hereditary because it was the only way they could keep people in the priesthood. This fact was abolished in the generation or so before the revolution, but not soon enough to create a vital and a dynamic church. I'd like to share with you that some, uh, something that you may have seen in the papers. It was sent to me by Dr. Bert Hopper from the Sunday, July the 1st, Atlanta Journal and Constitution about how the city may invoke the right of eminent domain to seize plants. I'll read just a part of it. Cities have tried eminent domain to keep their professional football teams from moving. Legislatures have used it to redistribute land. And now a city is contemplating the centuries-old doctrine as a way to save jobs. Officials in New Bedford, Massachusetts, announced in June that they may invoke the doctrine of eminent domain, a legal means of allowing government to take private property for public use, to keep Morse Cutting Tools Incorporated, from closing or falling into unfriendly hands. The city proposes to take the tool manufacturer from its owner, then resell it to a buyer who will keep it open. Experts in the field say the new Bedford plan may be the first of many attempts by government to use eminent domain to preserve jobs. If it proves to be successful and viable, it would prove to be a new legal tool cities and states could use to preserve their communities, says Andrew Bushbaum, an attorney with Georgetown University Institute for Public Representation, which is helping city, state, and union officials in the New Bedford case. The doctrine comes from the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, 
which says private property cannot be taken for public use without just compensation. Owners are compensated for their land, but they have no choice. They must sell. Similar language is contained in every state constitution. In the past, eminent domain has been used to take land for highways, utility lines, and urban development. But the, the definition of the public use is changing. The New Bedford proposal came a few weeks after a U.S. Supreme Court decision that broadened the definition of what government can do under eminent domain. The High Court upheld a plan by the Hawaii legislature to take several large estates by eminent domain and sell the land to island residents as a way to increase the number of landowners in the state. The court decision is seen by some as opening the door to other uses of the legal doctrine. I think it's quite clear a quite clear green light, said Lawrence Tribe, a constitutional law professor at Harvard University, who argued the case for Hawaii. As long as there is some rational belief that some good for the public will result, there is no limit to the kind of thing that can be taken by eminent domain, he said. In recent years, other cities have tried to apply eminent domain beyond the traditional purchase of land for highways. Oakland, California, and Baltimore have tried to use eminent domain to stop their professional football teams from moving to other cities. These cases are still in the courts. Three years ago, city officials in Detroit used eminent domain to take and level 1,100 homes in the Pole Town sector. The land then went to General Motors Corporation for a $550 million auto plant that employs 6,000 people. The action withstood a challenge in the Mich Michigan Supreme Court, and so on. I dealt with the biblical perspective on eminent domain in Institutes of Biblical Law, and I said there and elsewhere that there were some very dangerous potentials in the whole thing. Well, a while back I dealt with uh, privateers during the War of Independence. And the following Sunday morning, one of our number here, Ross Aiken, uh, showed me, and I have a copy of it now in my hand, in Congress, Wednesday, April the 3rd, 1776. By order of Congress, John Hancock, President, giving instructions to one Morgan, an ancestor of Ross Aiken, that uh, he may by force of arms attack, subdue, and take all ships and other vessels belonging to the inhabitants of Great Britain, and so on. And then... Uh, laying down the rules for such privateer operations. Very interesting document. One of the books I uh, finished in the past few days was Dr. Seymour Gray, M.D., Beyond the Veil, 
The Adventures of an American Doctor in Saudi Arabia, published by Harper and Row, 1983, for 1795. Very interesting book. Uh, Dr. Gray gives us some uh, remarkable insights into Saudi Arabia. Now, the interesting thing, however, is that three-quarters of all Saudis are under 30 years of age. These are the people who are influenced by the West, so that dramatic changes are likely to take place. The country has been developed to a great extent as a result of oil and the oil company, Aramco. When Aramco went in there, it did remarkable things. And as a result of its uh, presence, things began to happen. Aramco began to spend a great deal of money improving public health. They began to create hospitals and public health facilities, promoting sanitation, include improving uh, sewage facilities, supplying better water. They eliminated a great deal of the trachoma in the country, a great deal of TB, malaria, and much more so that the birth rate has increased, the survival rate of children increased, and many ailments that existed a generation ago are now virtually gone. This is what business corporations are doing the world over, which many people forget. The rainfall, of course, in Saudi Arabia is very, very limited, so that... Uh, the average rainfall in some areas is only two inches a year. The heat, uh, 120 in the shade, that sort of thing. Oil is easier to locate by drillers than uh, water. But schools, hospitals and the like are being built with dramatic results. It's a very interesting book. Um, some portions horrifying, others remarkable, and as then the kind of law enforcement they have there and the absence of crime. An interesting book also that I uh, finished recently is the desert fathers sayings of the uh, the desert christians sayings of the desert fathers by uh, uh, translated by sister benedicta ward published by macmillan in 1975 
and reprinted in 1980. Now, this book deals with the Desert Fathers who were, to a great extent, outside the mainstream of the church. Church historians and scholars have given them undue attention. They are very interesting people. We should remember that before you had the Christian desert hermits, you had pagan ones. Neoplatonists who had fled from the cities and the corruption and in terms of a Neoplatonic Greek faith were living in the desert. The Christian hermits, to a great extent, were Neoplatonists also. Very often they did not understand the essentials of the faith. As a result, they commonly treated, and this book gives abundant evidence of the fact, that flesh or sex or women were the source of sin. And uh, the result would be a very warped perspective on life. Now, uh, this was very common, and this is why they went into the desert to escape temptation, as though temptation resided in the city and women. However, there were some great men who were quite different and who had uh, a great grace and purity, and their separation was from sin, not things or persons. St. Nihilus was one such person. Let me read this example. When uh, any woman came into any area in the desert where the desert hermits were, they fled so they would not see her. The sight of her would be dangerous. Well, on one occasion, some of the uh, clergy were gathered around St. Nihilus. And let me read to you uh, his common sense attitude, which has... Uh, Sister Benedicta Ward says, is most beautifully illustrated in the story of St. Nihilus and the harlot Pelagia. When she rode naked through Antioch, all the clergy around Abba Nihilus hid their faces, but he gazed along and intently at her. Then turning to the rest, he said, Did not the sight of her great beauty delight you? Verily, it greatly delighted me, end of quote. <laughs> well, he was a good, healthy man. Now on to uh, something briefly. One book which is doing rather well of late is Dr. M. Scott Peck, M.D., People of the Lie. The Hope for Healing Human Evil, by Simon, published by Simon & Schuster in 1983. 
It is an interesting book in that Dr. Scott came to the faith, a psychiatrist, out of a humanistic background and began to recognize the reality of evil and of demonic possession. He gives a number of interesting cases, none of which, by the way, I should add, was did he ever cure. But one of his weaknesses is that uh, while he has a tremendous potential, I think he wrote the book about five years too soon. He carries over too much Freudianism, which does not go well with the Christianity he professes. So, while I was happy to see such a book, glad to see the direction of things that it represents, the book was not particularly satisfactory. Well, I had some other things, but I want to get back to something I haven't had time for lately. The poetry of Toyohiko Kagawa, Songs from the Slums. One or two more today, beginning with Jobless. Crunching the frost, a figure hurries down the street, buffeted by the cold, keen wind. And as he passes on, he always seeks the sunny side to walk along. He throws himself down in a bright, warm spot beside a bank, one of the jobless throng that haunts the city. Men go rushing past, the tide of traffic roars, but by and by, all huddled in a heap, he falls asleep. Hour after hour, he dozes, wakes and dozes, and the bean-curd cellar passes by. The sleeper rouses up, hearing the tinkling bell, eager to snatch it, impetuous to find a way out of his hell of bitter idleness. Alas, he has no bell. He flings himself against the wind, ashamed to sleep and doze. O oh, son, he thinks, are you as lone as I up in your empty sky? Feeling, ah, the sun, the sun is my fast friend. I love him, he loves me. He loves me and he gives this sweet and pleasant warmth. But he is far, so far away I cannot touch him nor thank him. And my heart is sad as for the world. It is too wide, too wide and cold. A bell comes jingling down the street. A peddler's loud voice calling, Too-foo, too-foo. This one, one garment left. I have no one to make a garment for me, nor yet a garment to be made. My clothes are soiled and torn and tattered. On the streets the people stare at me each time I leave the slums. But those who clothe themselves in borrowed garb are like a crow wearing a peacock's feather, fools. As for myself, bare legs, short shirt, 
sweatband on my brow, I gird me up to move the world. And when I wash my one poor garment stiff with filth, naked I wait for it to dry. Naked I kneel down at the crossing in the mud to weep and pray. Stripped thus of all that thou hast given me, Lord, I would give again my all to thee. And this one, discovery. I cannot invent new things like the airship which sails on silver wings, but today a wonderful thought in the dawn was given, and the stripes on my robe shining from where were suddenly fair, bright with a light falling from heaven, gold and silver and bronze lights from the windows of heaven. And the thought was this, that a secret plan is hid in my hand. My hand. My hand is big, big because of this plan. That God who dwells in my hand knows this secret plan of the things he will do for the world using my hand. Well, our time is again up. I'll be with you again in two weeks, and I trust that the Lord will watch over you and bless you and all of us here at Calcedon. We do think of you, and many of us are in prayer for those of you who support us, those of you who pray for us and those of you who read our materials and work to apply God's word to our world. God bless you all.